0: We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 of 2 Corinthians 11. And Father, as we open your word, God, I pray that you would open it up to us. That, Lord, we would see you clearly. That, God, we would hear from you distinctly and personally. And, Lord, we thank you for this time together. And, God, we do ask that you would just bless the the tithes and offerings this morning as We receive those, and and God, I pray that You would use those for Your glory, that God, You would continue to do Your work in this community of spreading the gospel, God, and and helping the, the needy, and Lord, sending the message of Jesus throughout the world as we support missions and so many things, Lord, outreaches and other things we're a part of. God, I just thank you for your provision and just pray that, God, we would continue just to trust you in all areas of our life. God, speak to us now by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Corinthians, chapter 11. Paul continues to defend his ministry. As false teachers had arisen up in the church. And they had led the people away from Christ by completely discrediting Paul. See, they knew they had to discredit Paul. They knew they had to shine some doubt upon Paul in order for them to then insert their false teaching. And so they've now discredited Paul. They basically ran him through the mud. And now they've elevated themselves to this position of authority in the life of the church there in Corinth. And Paul, as we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, as we started chapter 10 and really this last section of the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul begins to defend himself, his ministry, to, to defend what he had established there in Corinth. But we have to remember that Paul really isn't, Wanting to defend himself personally. He's not wanting for them to think that he's great. He's not wanting to place himself on some sort of a pedestal. That isn't what he wants. What he wants is for them to re-embrace the simplicity of the gospel that they had believed when he was there among them. But they had so quickly deserted for false teaching. And so Paul is is wanting to really bring validation back to the message that he brought to them. Because they've been led astray by this false teaching. And so in our text this morning, we're going to see four points. We're going to see Paul's jealousy, Paul's concern, Paul's service and Paul's warning. Verses 1 and 2, we see Paul's jealousy. Read it with me. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, I think it's our natural inclination to think of jealousy only in the negative sense. And you might have even thought, I've I've never thought of jealousy as godly jealousy. I've always thought of it as a bad thing. And actually, throughout the Bible, we see God referred to as a jealous God. Time and time again, if you do a search, you'll see that God describes himself and God is described as a jealous God. So jealousy can't be completely evil because we know God is without evil. We know God's perfect and in him dwells no darkness at all. We we know that. And so really, there must be two types of jealousy. There's godless jealousy and there's godly jealousy. Now, godless jealousy is something that we're familiar with, maybe you've experienced it personally i think we all have we've probably been you know sort of the um on both ends of jealousy maybe we've had people be jealous of us and we've been jealous of others but godless jealousy is is really selfish jealousy it's concerned with how something or someone affects you you've heard the term to be green with envy that's Godless jealousy. It's to be jealous because your neighbor, you know, just bought a brand new Hummer. You know, that that might create a little jealousy. Or to be jealous because, you know, one of your siblings um, is doing so much better than you financially or occupationally. And, and now you're jealous of them because the family makes a big deal about them and they don't make a big deal about you. There's a lot of things that we can be jealous about. We can be jealous because someone's given a position and we aren't, or you know, someone is the boss's favorite or the teacher's favorite or whatever. We can be jealous about a lot of things, and that is selfish jealousy. It's a jealousy that wants for yourself. It's concerned with only self. But then there is, as Paul would say here, a godly jealousy. He says he was jealous for them with a godly jealousy. This is selfless jealousy. This is jealousy that's concerned about someone else. You see, Paul sees himself as a father, as a father of the bride with this church in Corinth. And in that society, it was considered the father's responsibility to keep his daughter pure until marriage, to keep his daughter Sexually pure until her wedding day. That was his responsibility, as well as the daughter's, of course. But it was, in his mind, his responsibility. And it would be a shame for his daughter to give herself away like that before she was married. And Paul says, like a jealous father, I'm outraged that my daughter in the faith, this church this church of Corinth, has been seduced by these false teachers. You see, the church is called the Bride of Christ, and Jesus is called our Bridegroom. And so Paul really sees himself as the father of the bride, presenting the church to Christ. And he says, I presented you to one husband. I betrothed you. Now, we know that in that time they had arranged marriages. And it would be arranged at a very young age. Maybe you had a friend who had a son and you had a daughter and and you said, hey, you know, when they're of age, they'll be married. And it was arranged for you. And Paul says. I betrothed you to one husband. And yet now you've been seduced by this perverted gospel. This pseudo gospel. And it was. Creating a jealousy in Paul's heart, not a jealousy for himself, but a jealousy for the church there because they were being led astray. And as he goes on in verses three and four, we see his concern about that. Paul's concern, he says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And so here Paul expresses his concern. He was concerned that the believers there in Corinth were being deceived and led astray from what he calls the simplicity of. That is in Christ. And it really is sad to see people, to see your friends, to see those that you used to fellowship with get wrapped up in false teaching. Teaching that leads them astray from the simple gospel message. And it really is a simple message, you guys. The gospel is very simple. Yes, it's complicated enough for smart theologians to sit around and, and debate about the intricacies of different doctrines. And they do that ad nauseum for millennia. That's been happening, you know, debating till you're blue in the face. And certainly the gospel is complicated enough for that, but it's simple enough for a child or someone with a mental handicap because it's not complicated, it's The fact that you're a sinner, that you have done things that are wrong and you need forgiveness. And Jesus offers that forgiveness by dying on the cross in our place. And my four-year-old daughter, who can barely write her name and can't add two and two, can understand the gospel. She understands who Jesus is. And so it's a simple message. But the devil, he desires to convolute and complicate the message. Because if he can't get us to deny Jesus altogether, if he can't get us to reject the message, then he will seek to add or subtract to the message, to the gospel, to keep us from all that God would have for us. See, if he can't win by keeping you out of heaven, if he can't win by keeping you from Jesus, then he'll try to succeed by leading you into some weird, false teaching. He'll try to succeed by adding to or taking away from the simplicity of the gospel. And he does it with great regularity and with great success. And Paul uses an illustration here. In verse 3, he says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve. And so he goes back to Genesis chapter 3 and he uses that as an illustration to picture what is going on there in Corinth. That just like Satan deceived Eve, so they were being deceived by the enemy. You see, Satan is a liar. In fact, he's the father of lies, which means that lying and deceiving originated with Satan. Deception is his M.O. It's how he exists. And his goal, you guys, is to get us to believe his lies. If we don't believe his lies, then he's out of a job. It's what he does. And so, he tries to get people to believe and to fall for his deception. Deception. And this is precisely what he did to Eve. It's precisely what he was doing there in the church of Corinth. It's precisely what he'll do in our lives if we allow him to. And with Eve, as Paul uses this illustration, you remember. Genesis chapter 3, the devil came in the form of a serpent. And first he questioned God's word. Has God said, he said to Eve, Has God really said that? He questioned it. Then he denied it altogether. You will not surely die, he said. Now, God had already said, if you eat from that tree, you will die. It wasn't complicated. It was very simple. Stay away from that tree. There was no confusion when that command was given. Adam and Eve didn't ask for more clarification. It wasn't like they were scratching their heads Wondering, what exactly did God mean by that? They knew. But then the devil came and he brought doubt. He planted deception. He denied God's Word. And then he added to God's Word. He said, you know what? You will not surely die. In fact, what God doesn't want you to know is that when you eat it, you'll become like Him. And that was... Really, the root, the genesis, if you will, of all false teaching. That you'll become like God. He questioned God's Word. He denied God's Word. And then he added to God's Word. And he's doing that today in the lives of so many. And Paul goes on and he talks about his service among them in verses 5 through 12. And really what he's wanting to do is to compare his service to the service of these false apostles, these false teachers. Because remember, he's wanting them to come back to the simplicity of the message. And in order for him to do that, he feels that that he needs to get them to understand the messenger once again. I mean, it is true, right? If you're going to believe a message, you have to believe in the messenger, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, how will they believe without a preacher? And so it is important. We have to, in a sense, as evangelists, as people that are sharing the gospel, we have to be bought into. People have to see that we have validity to us. And that's why if you're a hypocrite or if your life doesn't back up what you're saying, then people aren't going to accept the message that you're saying. They go hand in hand. And so Paul is is wanting for them to once again buy into his ministry. And so what he does is he tells them three things that he did among them as he served them. He talks about his service. And we know that the theme of the book of Second Corinthians has been serving. Some of you are probably thinking, yeah, we've heard too much about serving. I'm ready to move on. And it has been an overarching theme throughout this whole book. In fact, I kind of feel like chapter 4, verse 15 is the theme verse. As Paul says, for all things are for your sakes. That was his heart. That was the heart that he had among them. It's exactly what he did while he was planting this church, spending 18 months with them, selflessly serving them. While these false teachers who came in after Paul left, they weren't serving, they were desiring to be served. And we know that Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And so Paul has been following in the footsteps of Christ. And he said, I came to you wanting to serve you. And now he's going to remind them of three ways in which he served them. First of all, with humility. Look at verses five in the beginning of verse six. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent or super apostles. That word eminent could be translated super. Even though I am untrained in speech, Yet I am not in knowledge. In other words, even though I don't sound like I know what I'm talking about, I really do. I'm actually pretty smart. I actually have a lot of training. I actually have spent my whole life studying the Bible. I may not be that eloquent. I may not wow you with my speech, Paul's saying. I wasn't trained in that. But I do know what I'm talking about. And really, we have to back up to verse one, where he says, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. Paul didn't want to have to do this. This wasn't his nature. To boast in himself, to talk about himself, but he felt it was necessary. And he says, if you'll just bear with me in a little bit of this folly, I don't want to do this, but you kind of forced me to. And the first thing he says is when I was with you, I came with Humility. Not like these super apostles, and you have to really hear the sarcasm in Paul's voice. I love the fact that Jesus and Paul were both sarcastic. It kind of excuses my sarcasm. You read the Gospels, Jesus is sarcastic quite a bit, especially with the Pharisees. But here Paul, he's really dripping with sarcasm. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to these super apostles. I came to you with humility. Paul didn't boast of his authority when he was with them, as they have. Yes, he was an apostle. Yes, he had authority. But he didn't use it as a means to elevate himself. We talked about that in past studies about how Spiritual authority is never meant to elevate the person in authority. It's always meant to serve. It's always meant to bless. It's meant to build up and not tear down. But these false teachers who called themselves super apostles, who said they were superior to Paul, they didn't come with humility at all. And the Bible says that we need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and then He will lift us up. You guys, in our service to the Lord, in our service to people, it needs to be done in humility. If we begin to get prideful, if we begin to have an elevated view of ourselves, if we begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, number one, we will alienate ourselves from people because that repels people. And number two, we will separate ourselves from God because the Bible is very clear that He will not share His glory with another. If you begin to get prideful, if you begin to think that your way is the only way or that the way you think is the only way to think, and you begin to you know, get thin-skinned and, and super sensitive and you can't take correction and you can't be teachable, these kinds of things will really inhibit you from serving God from being used by Him in a powerful way. And notice that James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. We often pray, God, humble me. And I don't think it's a bad prayer because God's pretty good at doing it. But I don't know that it's really what we ought to be praying. I think what it is is that we need to humble ourselves. We just simply need to see ourselves for who we are. And when we have a grip on reality and we see that we're flawed and that we fail and that we're sinners and that we don't have the corner on the truth and that we don't have anything except what was given to us by God, then it causes us to be humble and we humble ourselves. So Paul came with humility. It's a very important attribute of a servant. Paul also came with demonstration. If you look at the end of verse 6, he says, But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. What does that mean? It means that Paul didn't just talk about what he believed. He manifested it. He demonstrated it. While he lived with them. These false teachers, they were all talk. They could talk very well. They could convince. They could argue. They could make good points. But Paul said, I lived it. John put it like this My little children, let us not live in love, in word, or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. There's too much talking and not enough demonstration in the lives of many Christians. I think we're all guilty of that. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of what we believe, but what people need to see is it demonstrated in our life. What people need to see is that our life backs up what we say. And although I don't think that people's excuse for not coming to church or not believing in Jesus is valid, this excuse that, you know, well, the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. I don't think that's a valid excuse, although I think there's truth in the statement. Now, the whole world is filled with hypocrites, and so in some ways people just need to see that they are a hypocrite, too. But it is really sad When our lives are not demonstrating who Jesus is, when our lives are not demonstrating the reality of Jesus Christ, we need to demonstrate who He is in this community, in our families. Not loving in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's very important. I mean, God could have very easily said to us and left it at that. I love you. Just left it at that. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, there was a demonstration. Love needs to be tangible. Jesus went about tangibly showing love to people. It's never recorded in the Bible that Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I love you. Or to some of the crowds. That wasn't part of his message. But they could sense it. They knew it. Because of how he lived his life. Because of how he spent time amongst them. Because he, even in the midst of his own struggles, as he would be dealing with things and then the crowds would be coming in around him. He would spend time with them. He would love them. He would bless them. He would feed them. There was not so much talk with Jesus. It was a lot of reality. It was a lot of demonstration. And Paul also, while he was there living and serving among them, Serve them without being a burden to them. That's really the third way in which he explains his service. He said, I served with humility. I served with demonstration. And I served by not being a burden to you. Verses 7 through 12. He says, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? There was this accusation against Paul that because he didn't receive money from them, that really was an invalidation of his ministry. If Paul really was an apostle, then he would have taken money from you. He would have been supported by you. And so even Paul's desire to serve them without being paid was used against him. He says, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. Paul says, I wasn't a burden while I was with you. He felt it necessary while he was serving amongst the Corinthians not to receive any money from them. Now, this isn't to say that Paul felt it was wrong, for pastors or ministers to be paid because time and again, he talks about that, that he was paid by other ministries, that he in fact says here, I robbed from other churches to support myself. He says a workman is worthy of his wages. He says that an elder is worthy of double honor, those that teach. And so clearly he's not saying that it's wrong. He's saying that in that time, while he was with The church there, he felt it necessary to set an example, to not be a burden to them. And so he made tents on the side. And that's where we get that term, tent making. What a pastor or somebody in ministry does to support themselves if they're not being paid. Tent making. And that's what Paul did, as well as being supported by the church in Macedonia, which ironically enough, they were a poor church. And so here was this church in Macedonia giving to Paul generously so that he could minister in Corinth. And Paul's now saying, you know what, I'm getting a little bit tired of your attitude over there in Corinth. Here, I didn't collect anything from you and I robbed the poor church in Macedonia using that term loosely, of course. You know, robbed from them, but he's saying I I took from them. So that I could minister to you. These poor people down there were supporting my ministry amongst you. And now you're using that against me? What a travesty. Paul didn't want to be a burden to them. That was the bottom line while he was there. He felt it was from God that he wouldn't take from them that he would only give to them. He didn't want to put burdens upon them. And I think that that's an important aspect of ministry. Is to not be a burden. And we often say that. I don't want to be a burden to anybody. I, I, I don't want to burden you. But then we end up doing it. And it's not only in financial matters. It, it, it applies across the board. People can be a burden in a lot of ways. And the way that we avoid being a burden, you guys, is by depending on Jesus for everything in our life. Now, that's not to say that the church shouldn't help people. It's not to say that we shouldn't be there to pray for people and to minister to people and to counsel people and to bear one another's burdens, as the Bible says. But if we don't want to be a burden, just like Paul didn't want to be a burden from our perspective, If you don't want to be a burden and you don't want to put burdens on other people, the way that you will do that effectively is by relying on Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't allow people to be burdensome to you because I think we need to and we're commanded to bear each other's burdens. But from your vantage point, We shouldn't set out, and I don't think anybody sets out to be a burden. Nobody thinks, you know, I really want to be a leech. Just want to, you know, suck off other people. And, you know, maybe you get to that place and maybe you kind of enjoy it once you get there. But I don't think anybody sets off in life thinking that's what they want to be. I don't think people are proud of the fact that they are a burden to somebody else. And again, you can be a burden in a lot of ways. You can be an emotional burden just draining and sucking the life out of people. You can be, of course, financially burdensome, spiritually burdensome. And I think sometimes that people expect pastors to kind of fill that void in their life, spiritually and emotionally, and and they want counsel and they want advice and they want, you know, to be sort of fed intravenously. And... Of course, I do that and I spend time with people and I love to counsel people and share God's word with people. But the thing is, is that I don't want anybody to be dependent upon me. And so sometimes I'll tell people, look, you're leaning on me too much. You're dependent on me or maybe it's on somebody else. And we know that word codependent. We ought to be codependent on Jesus and that's it shouldn't be depending on other people for sustenance, for spiritual strength, for emotional stability. Only Jesus can supply that. So from the one side, yes, we need to bear each other's burdens. And we need to be serving people. And we need to be willing to help people. And if so be it, you're allowing somebody to be a burden to you, that's okay. As long as you're not keeping them from Christ. But from your vantage point, as you're seeking to not be a burden, the way in which you can do that is by completely depending on Jesus. Having a firm grip on His Word. Having a firm grip on Him. Giving your problems and your issues to Him before you give them to other people. We have a tendency, and it's a tendency of mine to, you know, call somebody first or to talk to somebody else. And if you'll just go to the Lord in prayer, there's an amazing thing that happens. And I can't explain it, but it just does. And sometimes you'll relieve yourself and others by just going to the Lord and not putting those burdens on other people. Now, there are times where you're going to need to and you need others. But we need to be depending on Jesus and Him alone. Well, Paul wraps it up here in this section by giving them a warning. Verses 13 and 15, we see Paul's warning. For such are false apostles. Deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. And so Paul's warning, he now warns them about these false teachers And he begins by telling them what they do in verse 13. That is, they deceived the church into accepting them as true apostles of Christ. And that's what all false teachers have to do initially is to get you to buy into the fact that they are true and they are real. And that's why when they come to your door, they come shrouded in Christianese, that they'll tell you, yeah, I believe just like you do. Oh, you grew up in the church. Great. That's who they love. They love people that have some kind of a church background, but aren't following the Lord presently. They'll latch on to those people because they have just enough knowledge to be dangerous. And so they'll latch on. Oh, yeah, we're Christians. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the Bible and they'll have their Bible there. But then down the road, after you meet with them, after you begin to fellowship, that's what you call it, with them, you'll see very quickly that it's not the same Jesus. That it's a different Jesus. That their Jesus' death on the cross or a torture stake or whatever they might happen to call it, their Jesus didn't die in, in in a sufficient way. His death wasn't sufficient for your sin. There's still other things you have to do. You've got to, you know, knock on doors and you've got to hand out literature and you've got to lead people to your way of thinking. That brings you acceptance in God's sight. Or you'll find out later it's not the same Bible. It's a completely different Bible that they've changed and transformed or that they've completely written of their own. And later you'll find out that it isn't the same God. In fact, they're telling you you can become a God. And it's not the same heaven. In fact, they'll tell you that Heaven's already closed up and there's only a certain amount of people that are going to get there, but you can live here on earth happily ever after. And so you see that it's deception, but they don't tell you that right out of the gate. They don't knock on your door and tell you, hey, did you know that you can become a god? You would slam the door. Everybody would. Even your, you know, run-of-the-mill pagan wouldn't buy that. Let alone a person that has a history in the church, you'd be like, what? Forget you. But they come in very deceitfully. And that's what these false teachers were doing there in Corinth. They wanted them to buy into their teaching. And so they presented themselves as true apostles. How do they do it? We see what they do. How do they do it? Well, they do it through the power of the devil. Paul says very clearly there. They do it through the inspiration, not of the Holy Spirit, but of the devil himself. Because Satan, you guys, he wants to appear as a good guy. And so his messengers, his servants, or as Paul calls them here, his ministers, they do the same. Satan is crafty. We've got to understand that. He's not stupid. He's very intelligent. He's very crafty. He's very good at what he does. And he knows that believers will not immediately accept a lie. So he baits the hook, luring us into his deception. He doesn't come with a red suit and horns and a pitchfork. We would recognize him. Hey, you're the devil. Get out of here. He comes as something we would be comfortable with. And slowly and ever so subtly, he's patient. Unlike us, he's very patient. All deceivers are patient. Good salesmen are patient. It, it, it's not always a godly attribute. And Satan is very patient. He doesn't care if he gets you at 20 or at 30 or at 50. He'll wait. He'll subtly and craftily deceive you. And if it takes him a lifetime, then so be it. He's got plenty of other things to occupy his attention. And he'll just lure you in. And that's how people get wrapped up into cults. But this also applies in the area of sin. Satan tempts us with those things that are attractive to us. He doesn't try to tempt us with things that aren't attractive to us. It just would be very ineffective. There's some sins that aren't attractive, that we aren't drawn to, that we don't have proclivities toward. But the ones that we do, He uses those. And He doesn't show us the consequences of sin. That would be counterproductive. He lures us with the fun, the excitement. He lures us with all of the things that look so great. Then he leaves us with the guilt and the shame and the pain and the devastation. And then God, who is always there, who never leaves us nor forsakes us, he's there to clean up the mess. But Satan just presents all the fun. Just like a good salesman. They don't tell you the consequences. They don't give you all of the fine print. You know, just like those drugs they sell on TV, you know, and then they read all the consequences at the end really fast. And in some cases, death, you know, it's like what? I'm going to take this pill so that I don't have heartburn, but I might die. I think I'll go with the heartburn, you know. It, it, it's, it's funny how we can get deceived into that, though, because we want something. And you notice how you don't ask questions when you really want something. You just sign off, you know, because you really want that new car, or that new house, or you really want to buy into that get rich quick scheme. So you don't ask about all of the ramifications. They tell you, oh, it will only cost you ten dollars. But their idea of what $10 is and your idea of what $10 is apparently are two different things. Because, yeah, maybe the initial fee was 10 bucks, but then there's all this other stuff. So, oh, well, we forgot to tell you. you got to buy this package and you got to buy this and there's all the product. And, you know, hey, it's only going to take you an hour of your day. One hour. its all it'll take. And you'll be making thousands, if not millions, one hour a day. One hour a day? I mean, we all have an hour a day. I mean, that's great. I don't have to quit my job. I could try this if I get rich. Great. Well, their idea of what an hour is and my idea of what an hour is must be two different things. Because it turns into a full-time job. So they deceive you. They lure you in with promises that they can't keep. They lure you in with riches and with, Exciting things. And that's what the devil does. He lures you in with all the fun. And believe me, sin is fun. Nobody denies that. If it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. But it is fun. And it does feel good. And it does taste good. And it is exciting. But then you're left with devastation, with pain, with guilt. And thank God that He's there to clean up the mess. And you guys, that's why it's so important that we stay close to Jesus by abiding in His Word. Because His Word is our offensive weapon to recognize false teaching. You see, the best way to recognize a counterfeit is to know the real thing. It's the best way. It's how they train bankers to recognize counterfeit money is by handling real money. You don't handle counterfeit to recognize the real, you handle the real stuff. And when a counterfeit comes in, immediately you recognize it. And so when you deal with the true message and when you deal with the real Jesus, when a counterfeit comes in, when a lie comes in, then you recognize it. It's also how we combat temptation. Time and again, Jesus used the Word of God to combat the devil as he was tempting him there in the wilderness. And it was the Word of God that helped him to overcome. We need the Word, you guys. We need to stay close to Jesus by abiding in His Word. Otherwise, we won't recognize deceptive teachings and we'll be led into sin. It, it's an amazing thing that takes place. But if you'll just spend time with the Lord, if you'll allow God to speak into your life by His Word, through prayer, I'm not going to say that you're going to live a perfect life because that is impossible. But I will say that those things that just seem to shackle you, those bondages that you don't seem to be able to get beyond, they will be broken in your life by a very simple discipline of spending time with Jesus. I'm not trying to oversimplify things that are happening in our life or things that have happened in your past. And, you know, there are things that that have happened to us where we're so screwed up that we need counsel and we need the help of a professional. I'm not denying that. I'm not saying that our minds can't be, you know, completely just destroyed by this world. But I will say this. For the average person who's struggling with whatever it is you're struggling with, who's just seem to be falling and confessing and falling and confessing, if you'll spend time with Jesus, if you'll stay close to Him, you'll begin to see victory where... You saw failure before. It's an amazing but simple principle. Let's stand and pray together, you guys. Lord, I thank you for.